Welcome back to Hints and Guesses, my podcast with me, Kent Dobson. Thanks for listening. Thanks for being a part of this unfolding conversation. This week, oh man, I am so excited because I have another uh, contribution to my series, Stuff That Helps. This week, I want to talk about stuff that helps. I want to talk about the work of Ken Wilber, if I can. Oh, it's hard. Someone was asking me recently, hey, what, what have you been into lately? And, like, and I said, I've been reading a lot of Ken Wilber, which I love when I understand it. So I'm not claiming to be some kind of a Ken Wilber expert. In fact, I just want to talk about something specific. I want to talk about transcend and include. I want to talk about that phrase, which is something that he uses. And I want to talk about that phrase as it relates to worldview. Maybe a better word for it is spiritual worldview or spiritual development. Or occasionally he uses the, uh, uh, the phrase spiritual intelligence, which is related to levels of consciousness, related to um, spiral dynamics, if you're familiar with that at all. But I, I want to pick up on specifically spiritual worldview or a developing spiritual worldview worldview. This will make sense in a few minutes when I explain what it is. So that's where I'm going. And I this disturbing little phrase that's connected with a changing, shifting, growing spiritual worldview, and that is transcend and include. Transcend and include. I wish it was just transcend. I first heard that phrase from Richard Rohr and it bothered me. It got under my skin. I don't want to include certain things from my past, certain previous ways of looking at the world. So what does that mean to transcend include and why is it important? I, I, that's what I want to hover around. So that's where we're going with this one. And I'm going to do my best to try to make this podcast helpful. I try to popularize a little bit of what Ken Wilber has been saying. If you want more information, I guess the best sources for him that I think are accessible that I'm familiar with are integral spirituality that's pretty dense my favorite is a brief history of everything so why not start there it's great it's accessible even though there are elements of it that are very rich and dense before I get going a couple quick things if you live in the Michigan area I'm doing a retreat, a day retreat called Wild Soul Day Retreat here in Ada, Michigan. When am I doing it? Cinco de Mayo, May the 5th. So there are a few spots left open for that. Highly recommend it. What do we do? We meet in a semi-wild place, 250-acre park, and we do different kinds of practices and walks, and there's conversation, there's a little bit of teaching, we read some poems. We gather together in a pretty small group hoping to cultivate our soul's relationship with the wild world. So this this deep and rich conversation that happens between the soul and the heart and nature. So I find these retreats very re rewarding. All kinds of different people come on them. So anyway, if that's something that interests you, you can check out the details on my website. What else is coming up? I am speaking in Atlanta at a church called Vinings Lake at the end of the month. So April 29, I believe, is a, is the Sunday. So if you live in the Atlanta area, come check it out. I'm going to do something on Sunday morning there and uh, Sunday night, not at the church, but, but locally. The details will be on their website, so you can find that out. Uh, let me plant a seed for a couple of upcoming... Uh, pilgrimages. I still from time to time lead tours to Israel, which I root in the in the heritage of pilgrimage. I have one in January 2019. The main group is leaving from Newark. So if you live in that area, that'd be a good one to jump on. And I'm going to open up a few spots to the public for that trip. And I'm right now currently working on another one in January. So look for those dates as well. And I think that is enough um, seed planting for future stuff. Anyway, you can always stay connected by going to my website, hitting the connect button, sending me your email. And that way 
you'll stay up to date. I'm going to be doing a lot of different kinds of nature-based stuff in the summer because it's finally freaking warming up here. In fact, I had a day retreat scheduled for last week and had to cancel it because it was 39 degrees and icing and snowing, and it's April. Yes, this is the way Michigan is from time to time. So anyway, enough uh, self-promotion. Let's talk about Ken Wilber. Let's talk about Transcend and Include. Let's talk about stuff that helps. When I was a student in Israel, I had one of those little magic devices called the iPod, the wonderful little iPod with the wheel. Uh, You can magically go around with your thumb and fast forward and rewind and choose songs. It was an amazing piece of technology. And I used to buy uh, CDs of Richard Rohr's teaching. I became obsessed with Richard Rohr about this time in my life. And I would load them on my computer and then load them on my iPod and I would walk around Jerusalem. In fact, sometimes when I go to Jerusalem, even today, I can sometimes hear his voice just sort of following me around because I listen to it so much. And same with Sufjan Stevens. That's when I first discovered his records. And I would walk around listening to Michigan. I would walk around listening to the Illinois record. And oh man, it just it colored my experience as headphones tend to do. And a few things I heard from Richard Rohr that I had never heard before in my life. Well, not a few, more than a few, but a couple that really stick out and really bothered me came from these iPod listens. And one of them was the phrase transcend and include. And this is what Richard Rohr said. He said something like the sign of someone who has really transcended, who is on another level of consciousness or stage of consciousness or awareness, or to use the language I was using before it, maybe a, a higher plane of spiritual intelligence or development. I know that might bother you a little bit, but just go with it. He said, always they've included something from where they just came. It's always transcend and include. It's never transcend and deny, repress, mock, exclude. It's transcend and include. Something has to be gathered up and integrated and folded into one's life at the same time that one is is transcending. And I was, I, that bothered me so much. I did not want to include things. There was so much of Christianity and my upbringing and the theology and the images of God that I wanted to deride, mock, exclude, deconstruct. And all of that, by the way, I think is a necessary component of change. I'm not against those things. But just because you put something down or just because I put something down and said, no way can I believe, for example, in a vending machine God where I plug in the right quarters, the right prayer, the right kind of words and the right mental beliefs. And then the little spiral goes around and out comes the candy bar that I'm after. I cannot accept that anymore. That does need to be challenged and deconstructed. But from the level of, um, moving on or growing up in one's journey, in other words, transcending, something of the previous way of looking at things has to be excluded. I mean, sorry, I said it wrong because I still have such a problem with it. Um, Has to be included. What of that view of God or that from that culture, that worldview, where is there truth, beauty, goodness that is part of who I am that has to be Uh, carried and integrated into the next chapter or level, if you like that, of my spiritual life and spiritual growth. So I found that phrase uh, worrisome, and it was like a thorn in my flesh. And then pretty soon I got into the work of Ken Wilber, which is where I think Richard Rohr got the phrase transcend and include, and he goes into much more detail, and he's basically laying out the same argument. Real transcendence, real moving on, looks like including. Now, now, by the way, if you're getting, getting nervous, which you should be, that doesn't mean everything gets included. No, some things pass away. Some things pass through the sieve and are taken out. Some of the chaff is blown away and the wheat remains, something like that. So that's important to name. Not everything stays. But I think one important, well, here's a, here's a quote from Ken Wilber. Earlier worldviews, 
are not totally wrong. Okay, earlier worldviews are not totally wrong. Even your earlier worldview or your parents or your culture or your church or your fundamentalist Baptist Southern upbringing like mine. Earlier worldviews are not totally wrong. Now that requires a tremendous amount of humility to get close to that. To say, okay, where, where was the truth, beauty, goodness in what I was handed? And after all, a worldview is not something that you hold personally. It's a collective. It's a, a communal and cultural thing that you move around in, like a, like a landscape, like a country. And you might live in one part of the country, but you can visit other parts that you, you, know, you don't visit very often. Whatever. You don't have to go too far with that metaphor. So earlier worldviews are not totally wrong, and I'm continuing with Wilbur, the new worldview is not totally right. Now, this is probably one of the great postmodern insights that my, quote, worldview is limited. It's colored by my hang-ups, background, language. Uh, nobody has a pure view of reality. My view of reality is covered by, uh, colored by my perception and my perception is limited so the new worldview is not totally right and that's really important I mean how many of us um, have transitioned from one worldview so to speak to another or even one belief to another and immediately thought the new was totally right whereas the the previous one I just recently inhabited is totally wrong you see this like in in big extreme things when people leave you know, evangelical Christianity and then become a Buddhist, which if that's your path, that's great. But you can hear the the inability to include when your new Buddhist worldview is totally right and the previous one is totally wrong. That's not transcend and include. That's transcend and repress. That's what Ken Wilber would say. Transcend and exclude, alienate, dissociate. Um, and that's always the temptation. That's always the temptation. The invitation is to differentiate and integrate. So yeah, there's a differentiation process that happens. You've heard it said, but I tell you. I used to think this, but now I'm coming to this. Uh, I used to live and move and operate in the world in this way, and now I'm living and moving and operating in the world in this new way, but I'm still integrating what has come before. That's, I guess, the invitation. Just like if you're into Jungian shadow work, for example, Robert Bly, I love the phrase, you have to eat your shadow. It's not like you de discover something about your shadow or your shadowy elements so that you can get rid of it. No, it has to be integrated. So these are um, some, um, some ideas that I think are, are worth just stating at the beginning. So let's go into a little more detail for a minute about what, where Transcend and Include comes from. The way Ken Wilbur uh, puts it is he starts with the physical world because it's probably the easiest to access. So he uses a, a, a phrase, maybe a word, maybe you've heard it before, and the word is holon. He says that, the, that reality is made up of holons. By that he means whole parts. So an entity, here, this is what a whole on is, and it's an entity that is itself a whole and simultaneously part of some other whole. That's not original to Ken Wilber. He's popularizing um, other scholars. So if you want the footnotes, go to him. Great example. So you have a whole atom. Okay, imagine a whole atom, as much as you can imagine an atom which is inside a whole molecule. So you have a whole molecule, a self-contained whole, but inside that self-contained whole it are whole atoms. And, of course, the whole molecule is inside a whole cell and inside an organism, etc., etc. It's all the way up and all the way down. That the entire structure of the physical world, the entire structure of reality, is made of holons, whole parts. And whenever you have uh, a moment of evolutionary transcendence, it always includes the previous. Imagine when the first molecule formed. 
It didn't transcend and exclude, alienate, dissociate, and repress atoms. <laughs> it included them. In fact, that's what uh, the, the newly formed molecule, that's what made the newly formed molecule was its parts, which were themselves holes. So I, I, ho I hope that has made at least some sense to you. And by the way, this also works with social structures. Like take, take how cultures developed from foraging to horticulture to agrarian to industrial. And now we're sort of at the limits of, of the industrial model. and Maybe something else is beginning to emerge. But so you have uh, the agrarian world, which is complicated and rich and involves tools and social structures and class and sophisticated religion. This is the world in which the Bible was born. It was an, ag an agrarian world. And many of the great civilizations grew up as agrarian societies. But what were they built upon? They were built upon what came before. The ability to, uh, for horticulture. Beginning to cultivate. Usually started off with small plots of land that naturally grew things. And they're figuring out a way to... Okay, this corn in this one area, let's clear out a little more and, and, and what happens if we mess with the sunlight and the water and so forth. The very uh, rudimentary principles of horticulture, that, that's what the agrarian society stood upon. And what did horticulture stand upon? Foraging. And each of those elements, foraging, horticulture, and agrarian, are themselves holes but contain parts. So uh, it's really not that complicated. But it's worth stating, because when you start thinking about worldviews, when you start thinking about spiritual development, the development of one's spiritual intelligence, there's not a lot of people talking about this very same universal principle of transcend and include. That, okay, we're in a different place. We're in a pluralistic, postmodern culture, uh, the global village. And the first tendency is to think everything that came before us is wrong. And we're going to dissociate, alienate, exclude, and repress, mock and deride all other uh, forms of intelligence, even though you know, last week, so to speak, that's, what, that's where we were. So um, it's kind of a humbling place to come to, this uh, newly uh, discovered or... Maybe we could say, um, maybe it's not newly discovered, but the, the principle of transcendent included is, is humbling, is what I'm saying. It's humbling, especially to the ego. The ego would love nothing more than to look down its nose at the place it just was. And usually it doesn't even come out that way. Look down its nose at um, parents, um, grandparents, brothers, sisters, aunts and uncles, my previous church, my pastor this because of our newly found place of enlightenment where we think now we're totally right even if we wouldn't talk like that some part of us does and of course those people are totally wrong so that's that's the thing that I want to poke around in and I want to talk about this if I can personally because there were lots of stuff that was really bothering me inside Christianity I'll give you some things like um, the virgin birth maybe we'll talk about that by the end of this podcast we'll talk about um this sacrificial atonement, crucifixion of Jesus. What, um, for example, as I started to come out from underneath heavy-handed atonement theology, then in some sense, what the heck do you do with the crucifixion? You wanted, one part of me wanted to exclude, repress, ignore, say it's not important. But what about the image, the symbol, had are, has already some depth, some truth, goodness and beauty that has to be integrated if I'm really going to transcend um, into a sort of a different way of holding a different way of holding reality in fact that's probably what is a spiritual worldview it's how we conceive of ultimate reality that's a definition I would maintain I, I got that from Wilbur really or my my reading of Wilbur a spiritual worldview is how we conceive of ultimate reality and if that's going to grow and change and evolve it seems to to necessitate this transcend and include uh, principle so um, part of 
let, let me say two other things about evolution itself, evolution of thought, evolution of spirituality. One of the things that I think is really intriguing that Ken Wilber points out is, first of all, let's, let's start with a word like evolution. You know, Darwin, of course, um, brought us the survival of the fittest. And not Darwin himself, but some of his um, followers or those who came after him um, popularized this notion in such a way that we, many of us came to see the concept of evolution as a dog-eat-dog, -dog, survival of the fittest, bitter um, claw toward the top, not an expansion of a complexity and beauty and goodness sort of spiraling out, but really uh, much more nasty and raw, and sometimes nature is like that, of course. But that's not actually true to Darwin himself. <clears throat> In fact, Wilbur says that Darwin only has two references to survival of the fittest. Two. He has 95 references to love. So that right there ought to challenge uh, the founder of a uh, challenge our understanding of the founder of evolution itself that there's something about the higher drives uh, Darwin also uses the phrase moral sensitivity that as the universe grows and expands it seems to move towards self-organization not disintegration it seems to move from simple to complex and even on the level of morality seems to move toward love inclusion and uh, com uh, complexity and depth, which, of course, some of the greatest scientists are saying right now. I mean, <clears throat> they're confirming this sort of intuition that, that Darwin had. Now, why am I saying all that? Because I'm thinking of a Rilke poem. I live my life in widening circles. I live my life in widening circles. What is it about our experience of reality that, at its best, is like a widening circle? widening circles of inclusion transcending and including from atom to molecule to cell to organism and from foraging horticulture agrarian to industrial <laughs> or and now i'll get right to it um to now i'm speaking of spiritual worldviews from archaic to magic from magic to mythical and out goes the spiral from magic to mythical from mythic to rational and out from rational where a lot of us are stuck to pluralistic and then you can see this the the spiral widening from pluralistic to integral and I'll try to say what that is in a few minutes and from integral to super integral which I won't say very much about because I that's a phrase from Ken Wilber that I my eyes sort of glaze over when I hear super integral but archaic, magic, mythic, rational, pluralistic, integral. These, this is a, a metaphoric or symbolic way of naming spiritual development, spiritual intelligence, or spiritual worldviews. And they all involve sort of increased levels of consciousness. But if we were to go ahead and apply the principle of transcend and include, if it's really going to be transcendent include, then something of the mythic has to be included in the rational. Something of the magic has to be included in the mythic. Something in, uh, or excuse me, something in the mythic has to be, has to include the magic. You see where I'm going. Archaic, magic, mythic, rational, pluralistic, and integral. I live my life in widening circles. So I think the invitation to those of us who care about this stuff and want to grow up. I often tell people that what I wanted most of all when I when I really started to look at my own existential crap was to grow up. To grow up and psycho-spiritually. And so that, I mean, that's why in one sense, that's why I think it's worth talking about some of this stuff conceptually because it helps create a map and the map is not the same as the territory. The map is not the same thing as the territory. I love it when people first get introduced to spiral dynamics and they think because they've heard it, they're at a higher level of consciousness. 
or when they first get exposed to these stages of faith or, or uh, spiritual worldview categories, and they read a word like integral, and they say, well, I must be integral because I clearly understand these concepts, therefore I'm at a higher level. That's not the same as the territory. One's actual worldview, or I like the phrase center of gravity, is very subtle. Yes, it involves your thinking, what you think and believe about the world consciously, but it also involves the unconscious, and it involves patterns, and it involves systems, and it involves family dynamics, and it's very, very subtle. And real change, in my view, takes time. It's very, very slow, the evolution of all things, especially from the mythic to the rational, from the rational to the pluralistic, from the pluralistic to the integral. So I, I hope that's making some sense, at least initially, as a map. Okay, um, I'm gonna, I, I want to say some more things about the map, but let me also introduce another Ken Wilber idea, and he says that there is a difference between a state and a stage. Okay, a state and a stage. So a stage might be something like the mythic. Or sometimes he uses the phrase mythic literal. I think that's James Fowler, actually, mythic literal. But <clears throat> let's say your primary uh, center of gravity is mythic. It's what your culture is all about, the symbols and stories and rites of passage and, and eating habits and agricultural practices are all moving around in a largely mythic world. And I'll, I'll say more about that in a, in a couple minutes when I explain these stages. Um, but that's a stage. And, but just because that's your primary center of gravity, it doesn't mean that you don't have access to what's beneath, the magic or the archaic. And it also, surprisingly, means that for uh, all kinds of very mysterious, complex, uh, I, I, maybe just mysterious is best, reasons, you can have a... Um, state of higher awareness. You can all of a sudden transcend, even for a moment, your mythic uh, imagination or your mythic worldview, and and in and maybe have a flash of the rational, or even higher in the pluralistic, or even higher in the integral, and that describes what we would call the great spiritual mystics and teachers of the past. Jesus largely operates in a mythic world, which has its pros and cons. Everyone he encounters and interacts with comes from the same mythic world. But that doesn't mean he doesn't have states of higher consciousness, higher awareness. He'll say something that sounds pluralistic. He'll say something that sounds rational. He'll say... <clears throat> something that sounds integral. Why? Because he's in a state. Now, you might argue with me, well, Jesus is always in the higher state. Okay, whatever. But you get my point. For a moment, there's transcendence. Okay? And we don't know why this happens. That means no matter where you are, you may, all of a sudden, you're just out on a walk and in a field, and you are taken by something by a higher awareness, a higher level. You have a flash of insight. You see something. You see the way the world really is for a moment, and you're at a different, um, higher level of consciousness, even if it's for a moment. But that's um, a state of awareness or consciousness. That's not a stage. You can quickly go right back down to the stage. And probably what these sort of encounters and moments do for people is sort of uh, grease the wheels. And they grease the wheels of change, and they they quicken they qu these uh, mystical, numinous experiences of higher states of consciousness quicken the process of change, um, of moving to a different uh, stage altogether, from the mythic to the rational, from the rational to the pluralistic, and so forth. Oh, I'm, I, I'm, I'm getting so excited about this stuff. I really, really love this stuff. I hope, I hope I'm not losing you. Um, but if I am, you can listen to it again or you can pick up uh, Wilbur's book. He's my corporate sponsor right now, Ken Wilbur.
All right. Now, let me see. Let me see. Let me just say a couple things about <clears throat> how I'm using these stages. Let's let's hang out just for a second on the magic, the uh, mythic, the rational, and the pluralistic. So, uh, starting with the with the magic, what do we mean by that? There was a time, an era, an age where most cultures seemed their their center of gravity seemed to be magic or magical. And what did they mean by that? What they meant by that was that an individual can alter reality by thinking <laughs> or by simple rituals. That there's some kind of, in some ways it's a, a more egotistic uh, uh, frame. In other words, the, the, as the ego, early ego, egocentric consciousness develops, on a cultural level, it tends to look like sort of magic. What I do affects uh, the weather, affects mm, my state of health. So if I, if I, if my mom gets sick, maybe if I did a kind of magical ritual down by the creek, she would get better. Um, or if I failed to do the magic ritual down by the creek, then that would cause, in a very direct way, my illness or whatever, or, m or my mom's illness or something like that. That's, that's a magic world. And, and by the way, in case you think, well, it's definitely not me, I'm not above that. No, it's in our, our psyches, our earlier stages. Remember, nobody grows up totally out of these things up into higher and higher planes the spiral works all the way back down something of the the magical lives within you in your own childlike self because that's part of how we evolve and develop as human beings every little kid thinks magically on one level and this is where stories like um, walking on water very attractive to uh, more of a, a magic oriented uh, mindset or worldview. So that's a little on the magic. The mythic. The mythic, again, I said before, is the world in which the Bible is born. And I love, 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 love myths, legends, stories, that kind of thing. And that's a dimension of the mythic. Um, but what the mythic, according to Wilbur, tends to emphasize is that the stories are literal, literally true. And I would actually argue with him a little bit that, I mean, I'm sure he would take me to task, but this is what Wilbur says. The mythic tends to be a little more literal and that the stories actually happened. We're talking about an actual virgin birth, etc., things like that. And the growth in consciousness expands from egocentric to ethnocentric and therefore group identity matters more than anything else in the mythic world. That's where you get things like, quote, the chosen people. Tribalism. My tribe's better than your tribe because my God's better than your God and gods are very geographical. In nature so that's a little bit of the the mythic uh, world uh, worldview or, or spiritual intelligence again it lives in you it lives in me and just a kind of a side note um, uh, Wilbur make I don't know how he makes up these statistics but he says 60 to 70 percent of the world's population are still at this level the kind of mythic or mythic literal level um, and, uh, and what happens next? What's the next, if, if one begins to transcend the mythic, they find themselves in the rational and where you have the capacity to take, to take a larger view of things. Um, you, you have more of a third person perspective. You begin to think about universal humanity and not just specific tribalism. Um, the Western enlightenment, of course, started with all this stuff, uh, with world centric at least moving toward a more world-centric awareness. Modern science came in, and that's a lot of the, the training I received just as a, as a graduate student. We were taking these stories, which were born in a much more mythic time, and then applying Western scientific methods of criticism, like historical critical scholarship, like archaeology, like anthropology, sociology, bringing in the rational. Great gifts come with this. And that's where, you know, we also started pulling the whole thing apart, you know, deconstructing the thing. That's a great gift of the rational mindset. Of course, you have deism beginning to, to enter in. This is the thing, the, the founding of America. Um, and by the way, 
what I would consider the quest for the historical Jesus, which occupied a huge part of my life. I just was obsessed with the real Jesus. If I could just get to the bottom of the well and peer into the water, I would see not my own reflection, um, but I would see the real Jesus. That is a very fruitful path to go down, but nobody gets to the bottom of the well. But that's the great gift of the rational mindset from a spiritual worldview point of view. You uh, go on this path. And, and even like, um, I don't know how familiar you are with the Jesus seminar and historical Jesus stuff, but uh, a few years ago, I think maybe in the 80s, uh, the scholars got together and they basically created a New Testament that was color-coded between phrases and sayings that belonged to the historical Jesus, those that were suspect, those that definitely did not belong to the historical Jesus. Nobody would have ever thought of this in the history of humanity without the rational worldview coming in and emerging. Again, great gifts. It does tend to have major limitations because it tends to limit truth to the scientific, historical, rational, um, empirical methods only, and, and tends to do a lot of dismissing, a lot of dismissing. Everything in the mythic realm is nonsense. Everything in the magic realm is nonsense and archaic, because now we have the, the solid uh, footing of scientific certainty, which of course can only last for so long, because in comes the next uh, stage or level, which is the pluralistic. And the pluralistic is is the move away or beyond uh, modernism, you know, what people are calling po the postmodern. Instead of third person, we're talking about a fourth person perspective, meaning um, you begin to view your own view as suspect. So instead of saying, no, I just look at the world objectively. Like people say, I just read the Bible, you know, just that simple. There it is in plain English. I read it. God said it. I believe it. That settles it for me. And I'm occasionally I'm going to check that against the, the sources and it all confirms what we don't realize when we're locked in the rational perspective is that um, it too is colored. That nobody, nobody, nobody has a clean view of reality. It's always colored by hang-ups and language and, um, and what we cannot see about the way we see. And this is the pluralistic coming in, which tends to really mess with the world. It messes with things like, you know, um, absolutes and absolute truth and stuff like that. It's to, to look at truth as just a social construct. Now, one of the tremendous things that started happening with spirituality is that because of the emergence of the pluralistic mind, we begin to take a look at other world religions, other spiritual paths, saying, wait a minute, Christianity was, uh, is a social construct. Buddhism is a social construct. Let's take a look at these worlds. Let's compare and contrast them, which is like super exciting. This is where uh, the work of Joseph Campbell comes in, where he begins to read the great stories and myths and legends and see patterns. This was like unheard of. It, this never existed in the history of humanity. I mean, they, they were not doing this in the first century. Now, quick caveat in case you're like a scholar. Worldviews always swapped. Ideas, images, and symbols. It happened unconsciously. It happened subtly. Every single festival in the Hebrew Bible has pagan origins or roots. They're all sort of hovering around the same thing. Every single ritual in Christianity comes from either the Greek or the Jewish world. And the Jewish world was taken from the Greek world, from the Zoroastrian world. And so you always have swapping, always, always, always. But no mindset was coming in and saying, let's look at the universal patterns that are emerging in all this stuff. Let's compare and contrast. Let's delight in these various spiritual paths and patterns. But that's the pluralistic mind, I think, coming in and offering something that had never been seen in the history of the world. What a great gift. The dark side, the curse of it, is it tends to flatten out truth. And it tends to say, well, all truth is relative, and subtly say, therefore, there's no such thing as truth. 
therefore let's just do whatever the hell they hell we want you know there's nothing of depth here anyway and i think that's uh, a major limitation of sort of postmodern pluralistic mindset now what is the integral and i'll only say a little bit about this what ken wilber says is that the integral for the first time in human history came along and said that each previous stage archaic magic mythic um, rational pluralistic each previous stage has some truth where it used to be that previous stages were wrong but this new integral way of holding reality of viewing reality was that all previous stages belong think about Richard Rohr's book everything belongs that's an integral book that's saying it all belongs now some of it again is going to be blown away the chaff is going to be blown away some things you know dissolve die and decay but everything belongs even the archaic and the magic and the mythic and the rational and so forth and so on which is um it's it, which is the next stage of human consciousness and awareness and should be a challenge to every one of us who cares about this stuff really everything belongs we have to to then walk through the world and through our own worldview and through our own uh, changing ideas and, and patterns and habits and ideas with a lot of humility all right what am i not seeing what am i not seeing about the thing i'm deriding and mocking what am i not seeing about the ancient perspective on fill in the blank what am i not seeing okay L let's use some concrete examples and personal examples let's take the notion of the virgin birth for a moment the virgin birth comes out of the mythic world how do we know that because the story of the virgin birth of jesus is only one of many 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 virgin birth stories in fact it seems to be the case that almost wherever you have a uh, an important and radical figure being born into the world you have some kind of mysterious divine intervention in the form of birth and again in, even in terms of the hebrew bible every single major story involves some kind of um, mysterious conception and that was part of the what I would call the mythic imagination that the next generation that is born into the world is going to help bring the needed change um, and life uh, for the next generation so of course the gods are going to be involved the gods are going to impregnate human beings and the divine mystery is going to be to to come through the human womb and be born into the world so that's the mythic world in which the stories were told i mean it's so funny because uh, today christians would be like well that, that's that's what made jesus unique i mean check it out how many people you know were born of a virgin but in antiquity they say yeah so big deal dionysius was born of a virgin so um that's not what's surprising so that was the world in which the, the Bible was born. By the time you get to the emergence of the rational, the rational comes along and says, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. How is that possible? Really? Um, God is going to impregnate uh, Mary. How? Are we talking about sperm? Does God have sperm? Um, does How does that work? And because the rational bows down at the altar of the scientific then of course a good portion of the christian community would say it has to be literal of course that's exactly what happened the sperm of god the holy spirit or whatever um was involved in the process and we're talking about an actual egg and that was actually formed in the womb and 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 I don't know, and then you start getting down to the DNA level, you know, which is which is a problem for for Christian theology because Christian theology says that Jesus was fully God and fully human at the same time, which is a paradox. How does that work on the level of DNA? Either there's human DNA or there's not. I mean, is there divine DNA? What or you know, and and you, you see where the tension begins to arise, and then you have the major fight in Christianity that 
The stories have to be literal. They have to be literal for them to be true. Why are they saying that? Because that's part of the emergence of the rational, of the, the, the worldview of the rational mind. Truth is historical and literal, which is a major evolutionary leap from the mythic, which doesn't really need that. I know I said before that in the mythic world, according to Ken Wilber, they tended to believe these things are literal, but they also didn't tend to ask if they were literal. They didn't have those categories. It's like once the category emerges, then the question emerges. And you have this major fight in Christianity. Then who's going to win? And you have the materialists and the new atheists um, coming in and saying, that is what makes Christianity absurd. Can you believe these idiots who believe in some kind of immaculate conception this is magical nonsense and garbage and anyone with a with you know a clear scientific rational understanding of the world can see that this is garbage and nonsense that's transcend and deny now the fundamentalists on the other side were basically saying this like sticking to their guns no we 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 agree with you it has to be literal we're saying it is literal and then you have like books coming out you know arguing for the scientific trying to verify the Gospels, trying to verify all these stories, trying to verify the virgin birth, all this kind of stuff. So it probably didn't, um, uh, the arguments don't seem to be serving Christianity very well, but that's just part of what happens in the process of evolution. Things get very tense and change is difficult and change is hard. And and, and I think, uh, I think, Personally, one of the great gifts of the emergence of the rational was the ability, ability to look at the gospel stories and the entire Bible in a critical manner, beginning to, to sort out and separate the historical from the mythic, uh, things like that. We can't go back. We can't go back to only a mythic way of holding the Bible. The rational is here and here to stay, but it has its limitations. Thus enters uh, the pluralistic. So suddenly people started coming along, particularly with the virgin birth, and started to say things like, wait a minute, uh, might these, might this story represent something? Which of course is true on the mythic level. It does represent something, but the, because it would, took such a beating from the rational, it took some other worldview to begin to emerge to rehold these stories. Is there a way to hold the virgin birth? in a more pluralistic, open way. The pluralists might even come along and say, hey, wait a minute, the, the gospel writers, and really only two of them talk about this conception, but um, the gospel writers were themselves within their own mythic consciousness, so we can't hold that against them. They're not scientific materialists. They're not rational um, writers. They're not postmodern pluralists. They have their own perspective, just like I have my own perspective. Can I honor that? That's the magic, so to speak, of the pluralist perspective, beginning to honor instead of deride and mock these, the uh, consciousness that gave birth to these stories. That's some pretty high-level stuff right there. Great gift to the world, major advancement. And then come all the wonderful questions about what does this tell us about spirituality more broadly? What does this tell us about why are there stories of the virgin birth? Does it point to something? Does it point to something on the level of the psyche? Does it point to something, some pattern in culture about how change happens? This is the beginning of the pluralistic perspective. And, and of course, if you're going to read the story from an integral way, you're going you're to want to go on a hunt for the, the, the reality that these previous levels belong what belongs from the magic, what belongs from the mythic, what belongs from the pluralistic and the rational. So what am I saying here? I'm saying that um, with the virgin birth, what I've noticed in the way that I've held this particular story, I've gone through many of these stages. At first I went through, this is ridiculous, this is absurd. This doesn't happen in nature. I cannot believe in a God that toys with nature. That's kind of a paraphrase of Einstein. He didn't really say that, but something like that. Um, plays dice with the universe. I can't. I can't this, this no longer um, holds true for me, nor do I need it to be true. 
But that was the big fight. Is it literal? Is it not? Until something else began to emerge. And I began to get curious about, well, what is it about this, uh, about the incarnation? What is it trying to communicate? Um, is it possible to include some of these, uh, the, the depths to which this symbol is only just a pointer? And suddenly all of the questions change. You begin to say, of course, of course, if the world is going to change, something new needs to be born in the world. Of course, you're, you're suddenly drawn into, wait a minute, I'm not the captain of my fate or the master of my soul. The, isn't the mystery involved in some of these things? Of course, the divine is going to be involved in bringing forth the emergence of this new thing in the world. And even if you want to take it uh, quite directly, the person of Jesus, okay, the person of Jesus literally came into the world. And might there be a way of holding that that says the divine was involved? The mystery of God was involved? The mystery, I mean, after all, uh, pregnancy and birth is a miracle and a mystery in and of itself. Are we actually in control of that? Do we plan that? Or is there, is there something essentially mysterious about the entrance of something new in the world? And speaking of that, um, it, when, when you begin to think generationally, which is a much more mythic way of looking at the world anyway and maybe should be included, no, we always, always, always are looking to the next generation. We can't just be um, egocentric um, narcissists only concerned about what is right in front of us, but... but Change is going to happen with the next generation. We see this with what's going on with young people all over the country saying, hey, we want to wake up out of this slumber that you're trying to put us in by your entertainment and your politics, and we want to change the world. In On one level, maybe that's something like the symbol of something born, being born in the world, of, of the virgin birth happening again in terms of culture. Maybe the divine seed is being planted once again. Uh, from a, a more symbolic and mythic uh, point of view entering into the world. And even if you want to go into the realm of the sort of the most mystical, and when you begin to think about words like incarnation, the enfleshment of God, which Christianity wants to localize only in the person of Jesus, that, oh, the person of Jesus is the incarnation, which uh, it, all things belong. Okay, yes, and... What else? What else is the incarnation of the divine? On one, le on one level, isn't, aren't all things the incarnation of the divine? Isn't every child some, uh, isn't, within every child, isn't something of the divine DNA being brought forth into the world? And then, I mean, talk about widening circles. Then, then instead of the sacred only being confined to the person of Jesus in this very literal way and fixated in time in one particular location it's that and it's it's everywhere else maybe every birth is a kind of virgin birth on the level of potential something of the divine coming into the world what if we treated every uh young person uh entering in the world as th the next iteration of of the incarnation and the possibility for change and growth and and inclusion and love and expansion uh, being born in the world once again. And if, and if you want to read it on a slightly different level, just in terms of a symbol for what happens in the human heart or the human soul, isn't it true on one level that something of the divine through, our own, through the mystery of life itself, isn't that planted in the world, uh, in our hearts and in our souls? And doesn't it grow in kind of a mysterious and precious way? And then you start thinking about all the, the crazy things that happen with the actual story as it's told. When something of the divine, of the divine mystery is born in the world, it's actually quite dangerous. Actually, the institutions and powers that be want to shut that possibility for change down. They want to clamp down like Herod killing all of the babies in Bethlehem. This cannot be. This mysterious birth of a king cannot happen. 
that's what happens when when something new begins to emerge something life-giving begins to emerge the powers that be shut it down say we don't want the world to change we want the status quo to remain exactly the same isn't that the story of jesus or it's caesar saying no the world has to remain organized and taxed and the whole social structure has to remain the same we can't have the birth of a new king uh, the entrance of a new way of being in the world coming in and disrupting the system so isn't that the nature of change itself the mystery of god or the or the mystery of the divine being planted in the world again and when it begins to emerge it's it's in danger and might cause uh, serious disruptions to the status quo and everything about birth you start thinking about the symbol or the image of birth itself it's perilous it may or may not happen uh, uh, circumstances like there's no room in the end um, or where are we gonna live or so-and-so is after us or how are we gonna make a living and traveling and uprooting your family and moving around are all of those things uh, quite telling for the way uh, goodness, truth, and beauty grows in the world. Much of the world wants to turn against that and shut it down. So this is beginning to hold the story in a more integral fashion, a more pluralistic fashion, uh, but trying, I think, also to include the insights of these previous stages, to transcend and include, to, to in a very humble way, try to pick up what has... Um, what's helpful from the past. I think about, and, and pr probably the most dramatic one, of course, is is the crucifixion itself. You know, I was raised in a world where, a very almost magic world, where the magic blood of Jesus needed to be, um, you know, wash my heart away to make me pure again. That's very magic, magic-oriented. And, and, and coming up from that into the, the to the mythic realm, that that something of my own life is not worthy and has to be atoned for, covered up with the blood of Jesus, in a kind of a magical transaction. And of course, w once I'm in the magical transaction, I'm in the right group. I'm I'm part of the right tribe, and everybody else is part of the wrong tribe, and beginning to divide the world up. Which of course Wilbur says this is where sixty to seventy percent of the world's population is still stuck at this kind of psycho-spiritual level and uh, the the but it's not it's not the only level as as the rational begins to emerge and begins to challenge some of these ideas begin to say wait a minute because this was happening for me personally I can no longer accept this as um, as a view of God it no longer rings true I can't see uh, the divine as some sort of bloodthirsty tyrant that can't look at his own creation because they're so unworthy because they made a few mistakes and they lie and they cheat on their taxes or whatever I mean and the consequences of all that is that he has to torture people for all of eternity no this does not make sense this is not to be um, held any longer but has to be let go and in many ways is a corruption of the original um, insight anyway but the, the the rational comes in and begins to say this is uh, maybe not the only way of holding the story of the crucifixion and I th and I think for me at least I begin to see the crucifixion as kind of a um, a social consequence this is what happens when prophetic people like Jesus who I believe is a real person who really did many of the things that are in the Gospels, begins to speak the truth against power, speak the truth to power, speak love to power. This is what happens when he begins to dine with sinners and tax collectors and prostitutes, disrupting the entire, entire social order. An entire social order that is a predicated on, upon who's in and who's out, um, who's a part of the who's a part of the chosen people and who is not. Jesus comes in and and like a like a thorn in the flesh of of the socio-political establishment just by by eating with people dining with people and healing people and touching people like lepers and and women who are bleeding and and the whole thing gets turned upside down and 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 one of the great gifts of this reading is situating the story in a very historical uh situation 
where the rational mind is very much involved and the rational worldview, this stuff really did happen. He really did walk around. He really did disrupt the social order and the powers that be could not handle it. Now, you can also, by the way, at the same time, hold the Gospels in a complex way and say not everything that's recorded in there literally happened, but with the tools of historical critical scholarship, we can try to decipher what's historical and what's not. But definitely a guy was killed outside Jerusalem. And why was he killed? What, what did the sign indicate that he claimed to be a king, which is a crime against Caesar? And all of a sudden you realize, wait a minute, Jesus wasn't the only one who, who was crucified as a zealot or a revolutionary or one who defied power. In fact, Josephus tells a story where 3,000 uh, Pharisees were crucified in a single day. And all of a sudden you start seeing Jesus as special and not so special at the same time. This is the entrance of the rational. And you start thinking about the crucifixion differently. You start running it through a socio-political lens, which is a, an enormous, monumental leap in worldview. And, and, and can, by the way, from, the, from this um, transcendent include point of view, include some of the uh, insights of the previous levels. And, uh, but that's, that's where I thought, um, that's where I thought the juice was for a long time. This contextual, rational reading. And, of course, looking down my nose at previous ways of, of holding it until something else very slowly began to stir. And maybe it was pluralistic. You know, I'm, again, I'm not trying to, like, claim to be at some, like, you know, super high level here. But I began to <coughs> not be, uh, not find the either or literal not literal questions compelling anymore they lost their power they lost their uh, i lost interest and i began to l want to look behind them what do these things symbolize what did what does the pattern here symbolize why do we see this pattern of death and resurrection in other places in the world, in other stories, in other myths, in other legends. What is it? What is it teaching us about the way psycho-spiritual change happens? The way transformation happens? Maybe there's something to the essence of the story <clears throat> that is not about the death and resurrection of Jesus, but the death and resurrection of all things. About the death and resurrection of worldview. I used to think, but now I tell you. I used to want a Messiah that's going to come in and kick ass and save and save me and kill everybody else because my socio-political uh, environment and culture, mythic culture, has been holding out for this. Suddenly that loses its power. But, and, and, and you start to realize, wait a minute, this is, maybe this is to happen in me. Maybe the maybe the death and resurrection is is a psycho spiritual uh, image for enlightenment, for the death of the ego. After all, Jesus says, "Unless you know, unless you um, take up your cross and follow me, so you you have your own cross to die upon." And again, back to something I said a long time ago, states and stages. Here's Jesus rising up to a much higher state of consciousness, saying that this whole death business is internal is about the human ego and about the death and resurrection of the human ego and um, about y your own death of the first half of life and entering into the next chapter, the next phase, the second half of life. And all of a sudden, the whole story, for me at least, vibrates with energy. And we're talking about a mystery. Or, or um, Ronald Walhazer calls the story the Paschal Mystery, which, by the way, the early Christians did as well, um, the Church Fathers. The Paschal Mystery, that the death and resurrection of Jesus is about our own death and resurrection. It's not about going to heaven and, you know, escaping and all this kind of stuff, but something that happens on the psycho-spiritual level. It's about transformation. And uh, Ronald Walhazer, by the way, says the Paschal Mystery is not just a... Uh, an image for personal transformation. It's a transpersonal image of all things. All things pass through death and resurrection, which applies directly to what I'm saying about all these stages and levels of consciousness. In one level, it's all death and resurrection. It's the death of an old way of being in the world and the resurrection of something new, even as something of the old gets included. 
death and resurrection, or the life-death-life cycle, the life-death-life cycle of all things, of nature, of reality. And the invitation is to say yes to the Paschal Mystery, is to say yes to the creative and sometimes scary ways um, that we pass through these things, where it really feels like we're dying. If I let go of this, I'm going to let go of everything, which is what happens when you start leaving the, the, the mythic world of Christianity. We say, if I have to let go of this, or, or if I have to let go of the literalness of this, I'm going to die. And on one level, you're right. You're going to die. It's going to hurt. You're going to hurt people around you. You're going to hurt your family and your culture and your society and your institution. It's going to fall apart, which is exactly what the image of the story of Jesus is about. That's what happens to him. His family rejects him. His disciples run away. The, the religious establishment mocks him, and the political establishment kills him. So don't be surprised um, when this is happening in you and to you, because this is the way of transformation and change. And, and yet, and yet... There seems to be, the world seems to be, back to Rilke, a place of widening circles. That although this uh, passage through these things hurts, you can live your life in widening circles. Expansion, growth, and truth, beauty, and goodness can grow instead of shrink into more and more smallness, narrowness, like you're, you know, circling the drain which is often the temptation, which happens as a result of transcending and denying, excluding, um, deriding, and clinging too tightly to whatever given worldview you find yourself in. So I don't know. This podcast is getting long. Let me, let me end with some questions. They really come from Wilbur, some ideas here. Here's something that you might want to ask. Um, what was adequate from earlier stages? Really, if you were to honestly... On the level of the mind, thinking, and the level of the heart, what was adequate? What was a gift? And what's more adequate now? That's probably the most gracious way of growing up. What was adequate from earlier stages and what's more adequate now? In other words, what truth, beauty, goodness was present in earlier stages? Um... And what truth, beauty, and goodness is more present now? That's a, oh, that takes um, swallowing hard and, and holding things loosely and even holding your own perspective um, loose, loosely, I think. And, and, and even a simple acknowledgement that, again, or a reminder that what came earlier is not totally wrong, just like what is emerging now is not totally right. That keeps you on the, the path of being able to ask something like what was adequate <clears throat> from sort of previous uh, stages. So I think that's about as far as I want to go with this particular podcast. Uh, this one was a hard, hard one to make, really, to tell you the truth. And I feel like I could, you know, make it four or five times and still just be sort of scratching the surface. So at the very least, as always, I hope you heard something in here that you found helpful.